Welcome to Mouth Off, a podcast for and about marginalized communities. My name's Clary Sadler, and on today's episode, I'm continuing with our bonus mini-series, Be Pure, Be Vigilant, Behave. Today, I'll be interviewing bass player and session musician, Carol Jane Norman, the very talented musicians whom I've had the pleasure of knowing for a very long time, and I've also played with with my band Kutch, as well as at other charity events. Carol's had experiences with the members of Manic Street Preachers, and agreed to come on the podcast tonight and share anecdotal stories with you all. Welcome to the show. So, thank you for coming on the podcast, Carol. As you know, I've been doing a little bonus mini-series over the past few episodes. It's called Be Pure, Be Vigilant, Behave. And we're looking at the body of work of Manic Street Preachers, a band that I sort of consider, I guess, a band that have, you know, marginalised groups, um, issues, I guess, as, as close causes to their hearts. A lot of their songs, you know, will feature how the working classes have been downtrodden and risen above or things like that they've written a song about um, Mm. a a black actor called Paul Robeson, which I think is the album that you became familiar with them on the Know Your Enemy album. Mm. And lots of other, I guess, what other other bands might consider too, uh, maybe too taboo (laughs) to include in a song. The Manics, you can guarantee, have gone there at some point or another, for better or for worse. Sometimes it it may fall in a bit flat on its face, but generally with really sort of well intentions and, you know, whether it be feminist issues or gender issues, etc. So that's kind of why I wanted to do this. I, I guess I'm a fan. I mean, yourself, when did you first become aware of that name, Manic Street Preachers, who they were? Probably back about 24, 23, 24 years ago, my kids were going down to grassroots in Charles Street and I first became aware of the three Welsh groups then, you know, it was the Manics, it was Catatonia and it was Stereophonics. They were the big Welsh bands at the time and didn't really listen to them that much because... I mean, I was busy being a mum at that time, but as I got a little bit older, I started getting a bit more intrigued by them, and then they released uh, Design for Life, and I just fell in love with it.
Well, that was going to be my next question then. So I guess what was the song that maybe first got you hooked or got, yeah, got you interested? You know, that opening line, libraries gave us power. Mm. I was a bookworm and for somebody to write a song about libraries, Mm. that was really interesting. So I just had to listen closer and started understanding some more of their lyrics and some of their songs and just became enamored with them. Yeah, I mean, I had a um, a writer on the podcast two episodes ago called Stephen Lee Nash, who's written a couple of books about the Manics. He's written about the album Know Your Enemy, which I just spoke about. So that was the album in which the song Ocean Spray is featured on, which is a song you know well. And he's also just written about their career in general. And I guess the w- the way he came at it was looking at, you know, as you say, delving deeper into the lyrics, you know, on on first listen, your average, I don't know, lad at the pub drinking a few pints before going to watch the rugby might listen to a line like, we don't talk about love, we only want to get drunk. And be all like, yay, and think it's a song. For- yeah. A little bit like Blur and their song Park Life or Girls and Boys, you know, a bit of a laddie song. And actually, you know, what he pointed out about them, which is just so true of so many of their songs, is there are deeper reads on all of the lyrics, even if on the surface it seems to be something like that. You know, actually it's talking about, you know, how the working classes, maybe that is how they feel and they live for the weekend and, you know, that's all they want to do is get drunk. I don't know so much about older times because, I mean, you know, they are come from a mining community and back in those days they would work for all week really hard and they would be too tired to feel love and affection mm. and things like that. It was just get down to work, get down the pit, get home, get tin baths, have a couple mm. of pints down the pub and stagger home. Yeah. And that yeah. was it. That was their lives. And I think that to some extent was what they were trying to achieve when they wrote that song was to portray a an actual picture of the real, true, nitty-gritty working class as it was, yeah. not today's working class. I know. But then I it know. could be about today's working class as well. So it kind of like goes across the, the board a bit. It does. And I think, yeah, that, that line of even what is a class divide now, it becomes so blurred, you know, particularly. So many people, for instance, can go to university just by getting a student loan, you know. Almost like you rise into a different class bracket just by the fact that you attend university and you're going to come out with a degree at the end of it. Never mind that you've got into sort of eight grands of debt, student loan debt, yeah, to fund it. So you've mentioned a design for life there. Do you have any other sort of favorite, favorite songs of theirs that spring to mind? If You Tolerate This is a song that I particularly like because... I just like the feel of the song, that opening where you've got that phasing of the guitar when it comes mm. in. It's just it's just something really deep and nice about it. I, I can't put that sound into words. It just instantly recognises that song. As soon as you hear the first ping of that phasing coming in, it's wonderful. Thank you. 
if you put up with rubbish in this life, what chance have the children got? Mm, Definitely. You know, you, you've got to stand up and fight for your kids. And I think this is what this song is getting to. Uh, If you don't get up and fight, your kids are just going to fall flat on their faces. Mm. And it's a warning. Definitely. Do you know, it's interesting you mentioned that sound that sort of comes in instantly recognizable as that track because uh, there's a podcast called What is Music? If you haven't heard it, do check it out. It's, it's really fascinating. And they sort of do a deep dive into the career. Of, well, they started with the Manics. So they'll do a deep dive into a band, sort of looking at the, their albums, you know, album by album, and then they'll do a track by track analysis of each song on the albums. And they did have a producer called Dave Aringa on who produced that album, which, um, if you tolerate this, your children will be next, uh, came off, which is This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours. And he said that uh, what James Dean Bradfield wanted to go for in that opening was, the, you know, almost like imagine the sound of a comet coming down from space to Earth. And that's what he told the producer, Dave Oringa, that that's what I want to emulate. And, you know, it kind of it does evoke something like that, you know, that, that phased sort of sound. You you can see what he was going for. And interestingly, you know, you've picked up on, on that message of the song because, you know, I mean, Mannix are, are, are very much a, a left-leaning band politically. So they were furious to find out that the BNP had used that song as part of their campaign. (laughs) And it was like, (laughs) absolutely not. They were livid, so that quickly got uh, pulled. But yeah, definitely, you know, it's just so many layers. And of course, a song like that also being number one and being about the Spanish Civil War, which is sort of the background of that song. It's just amazing to think that in 1997, 98, you know, a band from South Wales writing a song about the Spanish Civil War got number one in the charts when you had the likes of Oasis and Blur and all that Britpop stuff, you know. So we've mentioned you've had a little bit of a, an encounter with James Dean Bradfield in the past. Do you want to tell us about that, how it came about and <laughs> uh, and what was the experience like for you? Right, what happened, it was about 20 years ago, there was a competition on the now... Uh, finished Red Dragon Radio and it was the Jason Harold Breakfast Show. So he was running a competition so that people could go and watch a studio set being performed by James Dean Bradfield live. So every morning all these parents were ringing in and they were saying things like, oh, well, I'm a great big Mannix fan and I would love to win the competition. And, oh, my mum's a Mannix fan or my brother's a Mannix fan. And this is going on every morning, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I'm trying to ring every morning to get through because I wanted to go and take my kids down to watch this famous Welsh musician perform live Mm. for free. Because I was a skint single parent. Yeah. So on the Friday morning, 
I'm trying to get through. My son is dawdling. He's not getting up out of bed. My daughter's nagging me for all sorts of things, and I'm trying to iron their school uniforms. So I've got the phone hitched under my left ear with my shoulder. I'm mm. ironing their uniforms with my right hand, and I got through. And James, um, sorry, ha- J- Jason Harold said to me, so then, what's your reason that you would like to win these tickets is it because i'm the oldest mosher in town and i want to give my kids some street credibility and Mm. i won (laughs) so with that (laughs) with that we went down to the studio i think it was about a week later and we, we were taken into studio b now james dean bradfield was in studio a which in the studio down in Cardiff Bay outlooked onto the main walkway in the big centre down the Cardiff Bay centre. So anyway, I'm sat on the floor in the studio with my kids and Emma Hignett, who was at the time the weather report lady, my daughter let it slip to her that I had an Eco 12 string guitar in the boot of my car. Uh-huh. So Emma Hignett somehow managed to persuade my daughter to get my car keys off me <laughs> and then came back in carrying my guitar. And I looked and I said, why have you got my guitar? And she said, go on, play it. <laughs> and I said, but I can't. James Dean Bradfield's playing. She said, no, just play along. Said, okay. So I picked it up, I tuned into his pitch and I just started playing along and about 10 minutes 15 minutes later in walks James Dean Bradfield and he says, uh, oh are you in love? Oh, oh you got any code 12 string oh can I play, do you are, you can have this one and he handed uh, me his Spanish guitar and it was really battered, he said oh don't worry about that love, he said um, Fidel Castro played that one last week and I'm saying, oh wow Oh, okay. So come on, come with me. And it took me into Studio A. So I'm like, I can't believe this is happening. (laughs) So I went into Studio A with him, my two kids and a sound engineer. (laughs) And he plunked me on a stool next to him. So we just started twiddling around playing guitar together <laughs> he taught me to play ocean spray and we played if you tolerate this your children will be next and it was the most wonderful experience I bet. and my children were absolutely blown away because outside was one of my son's friends who was one of the biggest manix fans <laughs> ever he had them tattooed all over his body and he's, he spotted my son in the studio. He said, what are you doing in there? And my son said, I'm with my mum. She's playing with James Dean Bradfield. <laughs> so that was that encounter. Then about a year or so later, my now deceased partner had bought me some tickets to go and see the Mannix. Well, unfortunately, he passed away just a couple of weeks before the gig. So I didn't really want to go to it. But my mm. daughter said, oh, come on, mum, he wouldn't want you to waste the tickets. So we went along. So after the gig, my daughter said to me, oh, can we go backstage? It was in the Cardiff Motor Point. She said, can we go backstage? I said, OK. Mm-hmm. So we walked around to the back of the studio and 
there they all are. <laughs> there's Nicky Wire, there's Sean Moore, and there's James Dean Bradfield, and there's hundreds of people all with their pens and their little autograph books. Yeah. And then James Dean Bradfield spotted me and he came running over. He said, why are you love? You still got that 12 string. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was just looking like, okay. I said, yes, I have. Thank you very much. <laughs> so that was that. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so so I, was, I mean, nice that he remembered you as well. Oh, I know. And I, I was lucky enough to get their autograph. Well, I got uh, James Dean Bradfield's autograph and, he signed a copy of um, Know Your Enemy for me. Mm. So they're amongst my treasured autograph pictures now. Yeah. You know, it's. I, I don't know him. I've met him on a handful of occasions, but they all seem very approachable, nice, and friendly. I've always got a lot of time for the fans. But I think, yeah, just impressed by musical talent and obviously to hear you playing and uh, you know for them to come in and say oh check this out and then him to invite you in to jam with him is yeah it was lovely it was such it was such an incentive because you know as a, a musician you get to a point where life gets in the way mm. and my life had gotten in the way quite a lot and I wasn't a very confident musician for a long time but then he gave me confidence and it was like well if you can tolerate this then mm. your music career will be next yeah yeah definitely it was oh it was lovely so do, I, I mean do you have a copy did was that recorded did someone give you know give you a copy of it there is some of it is on tape somewhere yeah uh, i'm not sure where but i should have the tape in the house somewhere only thing is, I don't have a cassette player anymore. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I've got one, Carol. You'll have to uh, dig it out, and I'll, I'll have to pop it on a. Uh, I'll transfer it so it's digital for you. <laughs> of course, things like that predate the internet, or maybe not predate the internet, but certainly, you know, radio shows wouldn't have been going via the internet at that point, would they? So, so much is still readily available at your fingertips now, which. It's great in one way. I suppose it's there forever as a, a record of what has happened. But when you think about the way people consume music now, you know, with your Spotify's and your Apple Music, iTunes, you know, you, it's very rare to own a, a physical download. Um, not physical download, a physical, yeah, a physical copy of something. I mean, I always make a point of purchasing CDs. Uh, I even I, I still buy cassettes, you know, sometimes just because I want the version of whatever album on a cassette as well. And the LP and the, you know, and the CD. I suppose I'm a little bit of a collector in that sense. Yeah, it's nice to that that happened and it was on the radio. That must be nice for you. And what was really nice as well was my son's friend saw it. So there was a witness to the occasion. Yeah. <laughs> you like because that sort of thing doesn't normally happen mm. you know that somebody who you've heard about who's famous says come here love come and play guitar with me that mm. doesn't happen but no, it does exactly. happen and it happened to me and it was fabulous <laughs> so I, I gave you a little bit of homework 
which was, well, I sent you a list of songs, but what I'll do, because obviously some of them you knew, but some of them would have been completely unfamiliar. So just kind of from one musician to another, just get your initial feel for it. Maybe you might like something lyrically or the melody, or you just think it's a cracking good riff or bass line. So I can share my sound via Zoom. So what I will do is play it on here. I won't do the whole song, but I'll do a little clip for you. So the first one is You're Tender and You're Tired, which is off the album This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours. song always puts a lump in my throat yeah so is that what what are your initial sort of things you respond into in that do you think well it's the emotion portrait he really really cares about somebody there enough to see all the pain that they're suffering mm. and it's, he just, it's, I don't know, it's, it just makes me feel like if that was me listening to somebody, I'd just want to open my arms and give them a big cutch. Yeah, yeah. And Sean's drumming is phenomenal in that. He really, really brings it out. He brings the emotion out in those beats. It's mm. fabulous. Yeah, I also love James's voice in that song particularly. It's like he's he always uses his voice as an instrument, but in, in that song in particular, I always just feel, like you say, the emotion song. Yeah, it's raw really, emotion. In yeah, it really comes through. And, you know, they never really said who that lyric was about. Obviously, they had just lost one of their chief lyricists, Richie Edwards. Well, actually lost, presumed dead, gone missing in, in well, it wasn't just, it was 19... Um, 1995, early February 1995, that he disappeared. But, you know, it makes you speculate. Was it about him? What was it about an older relative? Even it could, it could really fit any situation, couldn't it? But yeah, kind of reminds me a little bit, you know, listening to it. There's such a, a vagueness about who it's about. The lyrics could apply to anybody. Yes. Feeling that way, so yeah, it might almost, not just be about 
whoever they're singing about. Mm. And, you know, it, it could be anyone. Yeah, like, you know, I think, as you know, my, my dad passed away uh, last May in a hospice. But early on, when he knew he didn't have long left and he was already in the hospice, you know, he was in this no man's land and he he actually wasn't feeling that poorly at that point. But knew what was coming and just kept saying, you know, can they just give me a pill and kill me now? And, and of that line, um, you know, tender and your tired, you don't know whether um, whether to live or die or just forget about your life, you know, and it just kind of reminds me of that, that despair. But yeah, fab song. I love the vibe. It kind of almost feels like a Motown-y. You know, that piano in the background. Yeah, I the... like the chord progressions as well because the first time I listened to it, one of the things I, I do like about the Manic songs is a lot of them are unpredictable. Mm. You don't know where they're going to go next. I mean, you know, we all know about, well, maybe not all of us, but a lot of musicians know about the four chord trick, say mm. C, G, A minor, F. Mm-hmm. But though that's <laughs> predictable. But he's going into a different realm. You know, mm. he he'll start playing two chords that are related, and then he'll just go off on a tangent, and then bring in a chord that relates to that one, and then go off on a different tangent. Yeah. You think, what is he doing? And then it just clicks. And, oh, that's what he's done. <laughs> you just realise how genius a musician he is. Well, not him, all of them. Yeah, definitely. Really, really good musicians. I really respect them. Yeah, so I did say before we actually uh, spoke on here, I, I gave a little introduction to the episode, which I say, you know, your background as a musician, you know, you've done session work, you've you've stepped in with a lot of bands, you do open mic nights, you've played with my band, Kurtz, you've played with oh, loads of bands, and you are very much just, you'll get up, you'll have a listen, you know, you've, you're theory-minded, so you kind of, like you say, you can get the feel for it, you're also very good at playing by ear, and yeah, it can be, you know, both a blessing and a curse when you're playing with with an act that, that they are. They're being a little bit cheeky. They're throwing in a, a couple of unexpected chords and it, it takes you a while to follow it, doesn't yeah. it? I do <laughs> like that. I've got to be honest. I love yeah. a challenge. Yeah. Musical challenges. I think that's why I enjoy doing open mic so much because I never know who is going to get up, what they're going to play. And I've got to play bass for them. Yeah, yeah. And it's so much fun. But anyway, this isn't about me. This is about the manic. <laughs> but it's definitely always good to get um, an, a sort of musician's take on things. Because as I said, we've had had a writer on. I've had um, Patrick Jones on, who's writes lyrics himself. He's just uh, last summer done um, Even in Exile, which is James Dean Bradfield's second solo album. Oh. So he... Yeah, check it out if you haven't heard it, Carol. It's very, very, very good. I haven't heard that one yet. It's about um, a Chilean activist, Victor Hara, who was murdered in the 70s for his communist um, sympathies. Right. And they've, yeah, it's bas- it's a concept album, but it's sort of about the life and times of Victor Hara. And pa- oh. yeah, really, really good. If you like progressive rock as well, definitely worth a listen. Yeah, so it was interesting getting Patrick's take because he... Uh, contributed the lyrics to that album. He's a poet. He's a wordsmith. Uh, but yeah, it's always good to get a musician's sort of perspective on things because you will often at times hear something that maybe 
your average Joe or my mum, for instance, who loves music but is not musically minded, just won't pick up on. No. So from one um, very good track to another, completely different, but in my opinion, also very good track. So this is Condemned to Rock and Roll. I've cli- I've um, skipped through to the end of the song here, Carol, because it's a six-minute epic track. Right. But for me, this song is all about the, the the great hooks and the riffs. So I've just gone towards the end where they start just riffing away. Okay. <laughs> so here we go. That's the sort of thing I want to hear on my favourite rock radio station. Uh-huh. <laughs> Regularly on repeats. <laughs> that was awesome. I haven't heard that one before. Yes, that's off their debut album. Yeah, it made um, me feel the... like I want to put it on repeat now and slow mm. it down, work those riffs out and start playing them myself. Yeah, I mean, I, I faded it down there. It was still a minute from the end. I just love the way it keeps turning into something different. You kind of think, ask, ah, it's going to come to a, a close now and they're going to bring the vocal back in. And then it, and then it goes there. <laughs> so incredibly tight. Yeah. And they really, really work well together. So I don't know if, if it's noticeable to you, but actually, um, that was a debut album and Sean didn't end up playing any Sorry. live drums. So the, yeah, the producer, Steve Brown, who sadly recently died, um, worked on that album with them in uh, 1991, I think it was. It was or released in 91, so it might have been working on it a little bit before then. And he wanted a very specific sound for the drums, this kind of regimented, you know, particular production style. So basically, Sean went away and just learnt how to program drums using, I don't know, Probably wasn't logic then, but whatever um, digital workstation they were using. Uh, that was wasn't pro- live drums. That wasn't live drums, no. So, um, 
Sean just went away and learned to program all the drums. I came in and did it. And then learned to play it? Oh, yeah. So they have played it. I mean, I don't play that song live a lot because it's so long and it is so difficult to play. But they have played it live, I think, on at least one occasion I've seen it. And, yeah, he's doing the the live drums on there. But irritatingly, when they they um when that album was released in America, the record label, so it was released on Sony, didn't like didn't like the program drums. So just for the American release, they got a session drummer in to re-record the drums. <laughs> Imagine how annoyed Sean must have been. Oh yeah. yeah, I won't mention that to him if I speak to him. <laughs> So so yeah, what do you um I mean I know we didn't we didn't play it from the beginning so you didn't hear No I the, like the vocals, I like but... it a lot. Yeah, yeah. It, like I said, I would I think I'm gonna be putting that one on, slowing it down, working out what they're doing, learning it, and then speeding it up with my own fingers. So <laughs> maybe one day who knows, I know history repeats itself. I'd just like to be ready. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Imagine. <laughs> Imagine they pull you up on stage and say, oh, what song would you like to play with us, Carol? Condemned to rock and roll, please. <laughs> oh, that would be hilarious. That would be great. <laughs> okay, so that was off their first album, Generation Terrorist. I'm going to play you one off their second album now, Gold Against the Soul. This song is a fan favourite. They don't play it live often. But it is a fan favourite, it always gets requested and it's called Sleep Flower. Yes, that's another good one. <laughs> another one I haven't heard before. I like the harmonies. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It's particularly in the old, um, in the earlier albums. It's not always easy to pick out uh, the lyrics. But I'll just read you a little bit. Uh, so it's basically about insomnia. Someone, whether it be anxiety or they've drunk too much or, you know, just their own brains kind of keeping them awake and worried. So the, the opening is morning always seems too stale to justify 
lament blossoms, hours, minutes of our lives. Broken thoughts run through your empty mind. At least a beaten dog knows how to lie. I feel like I'm missing pieces of sleep. A memory fades to a pale landscape. You were an extinction, a desert heat, a blind illness of my anxiety. Whoa. <laughs> That's deep. Yeah. Hmm. I think people who have got anxiety and insomnia should listen to that. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it kind of, even without maybe necessarily being able to pick out many of the lyrics, I think it kind of, personally, I think it successfully evokes that feeling, that feeling of being on edge and, you know, and, and that sort of baseline going throughout. Yeah. So, do, 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 do. Mm. Yeah, I think I've got it in my head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What do you? What are your sort of initial thoughts on it? Well, I like the harmonies in the chorus, or was it pre-chorus? I couldn't. Quite, I can't quite remember now. But I, I like the heaviness of it. I, I just love my rock music. Mm. <laughs> you know that. Yeah, yeah. And it was when it had my head nodding right from the start. It had my fingers tapping on the table. Um, made me want to sit and listen to it all the way through more than once. So I think that's what I'll be doing with that one as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Time I'll, to listen to some more Manix, a lot more Manix. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll pop, um, I'll pop these in the uh, Spotify playlist and I'll share it on the podcast and I'll share the link with you. So you've sort of got your own, um, Okay. A little playlist of things you might, or things you've responded well to. Nice. Because sometimes the singles, while they are great, sometimes there is more interest in stuff in the B-sides and the album tracks. Oh, yeah. I've discovered many an interesting track that way. But mm. then back in in my day, yeah. you could do that because you bought a record that, and it had a B-side on it. I know. These days, you don't know what the B-sides are. Kids these days just don't know what they're missing. Yeah, exactly. B-sides are just not a thing anymore. I mean, you might get an artist that release a deluxe version of their album, which has like four or five extra tracks, which would have been... The B-sides, yeah. yeah. But, you know, a, a band like the Mannix would have released, like, for example, um, I think it's the song, I think it's a design for life. There are three versions of it, each of them with two or three different B-sides. So from one single, you may be looking at five or six B-sides, unheard of tracks, that is not, you won't find on the album. That's you know, really some, good. Yeah, some of my favourite Manix tracks I've discovered through buying the singles, you know, and whatever the B-sides were on there. So, mm -hmm. yes, it's funny you end up sounded, feeling like you sound ancient when you say, <laughs> oh, you don't know what you're missing. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> I know. Ch things change so quickly these days, though, so I can get away with saying things like that. Yeah. So, talking about tracks that you might not be familiar with this is a an album track from their groundbreaking 1996 album everything must go this so the album featured while it was them as a, a three-piece it did feature some lyrics that richie had left behind so the opening track elvis impersonator was a richie lyric kevin carter which is one of their singles was a richie lyric 
a song called The Girl Who Wanted to Be God, and this one, which is called Removables. Oh, and also another song called Small Black Flowers That Grow in the Sky. But I will play you Removables now. Okay. grown up (laughs) (laughs) yeah do you know i've always seen the nirvana comparison definitely there in that song Mm. yeah oh god it's not just me then yeah it just reminded me of of nirvana at the start and i don't know the it's like the layout of it was very similar to um, a couple of nirvana tracks i've heard in the past but they're much more grown up than Nirvana, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Musically, yeah. musically more mature. They've, there's a lot more going on there than first listening. And that was my first listening. I, I need to listen to that one again. Mm. I like, um, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with, with that album. It's the Everything Must Go, which is the album that has Kevin Carter and The Design for Life on. Right. I'm so not familiar with it, but I do yeah. have a Carter and Design for Life, obviously. The whole album, um, I would say that the album is more in keeping with the lead singles like Australia, Everything Must Go, Design for Life, um, Kevin Carter, to an extent, although that's got more of a bossa overy feel in it, I think, um, the way they do Kevin Carter. But then that song is almost like a little 
anomaly. It's sort of the one that just sounds a bit, a little bit like their old style rather than the sort of, dare I say, Britpop, because they're not a Britpop band and they never were. But that sound that they had when they came back in, in 1996 was more in keeping with, um, with the, the lead singles. And that one just harks back to older times, but I like it. I don't think it feels out of place. And like you said, it sounds musically more accomplished than, than something like Nirvana. Mm. I wonder, um, you know, do you think the fact that they are using Richie's lyrics, so, you know, they don't know what happened to him. He's left behind this set of lyrics, which are quite bleak. Again, I'll read a little bit. Conscience binds you in chains, trial by stone, hammer and nails. No one made the holes but me. Misery mourns to be devoured. Killed God, blood soiled, unclean again. Killed God, blood soiled, skin dead again, again, everywhere again. So, of course, he had issues with self-harm as well. He used to cut himself, he used to sort of do it very publicly as a way of, I guess, just getting out his anguish and his pain. Do you think that that has you know, influenced the, the the sonic decisions they made with how it sounds and that more grungy. It's quite possible. Yeah, yeah. It's quite possible because there was, even though it, it's reminiscent of Nirvana, we all know that Kurt Cobain had quite a lot of issues. Mm. But we don't know so much about Richie. But at the same time, we do know that, yes, he used to harm himself on stage and things like that. And he did it, from what I gather, he did it as a protest as well. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just self-harming because of pain and anguish inside, although that was a big part of it. Oh, yeah, like like when he sort of carved for real on his arm in front of uh, Steve Lamac because he accused him of not being for real. <laughs> and that was his way of showing him they were serious. Yeah, I think there was definitely an element of that. That was protesting, I think. I like it. Yeah, I like it. I like that it's sort of, it sounds heavy while still being on the acoustic guitar. <laughs> you know, they've, like you say, that Nirvana unplugged vibe, maybe that's, uh, and I do, I think the chord progression and the choices they've used there really does suit the serious subject matter without making it feel like too much of a depressing song. I don't feel sort of dragged down when I listen to it. It's still got that manix kind of upbeatness to it as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's where Sean's drumming is particularly clever because mm. he really, really does a good job of bringing the song up. Yeah. You know, you, you just want to move to those beats. And when we all know when you move, you feel good, you feel happy, you feel. And yeah. even if it's a song about really bad depression and, you know, feeling anxious and things like that, you're still going to get up and you're going to pop around. We know that releases endorphins, that makes you mm. feel good. And I think that's a lot is down to Sean with his yeah, drumming. Definitely. Speaking about sort of serious subject matter, I'll play you a song now that you are familiar with because uh well james himself taught you it <laughs> so this is ocean spray taken from uh their album know your enemy which was written about james's mother who sadly died of cancer and it's called ocean spray literally after the the cranberry juice drink ocean spray because his mum had you know had it in her head that 
as we're told, ocean spray is good for good for your insides, good for your body, good to help you heal. And so that's what they would do, sit and drink ocean spray together. So here's the track. Beautiful track. And yeah, of course, I, I'm not sure if you are aware, but that's the first ever James Dean Bradfield lyric. So it's usually Nicky or when Richie was still with the band, it was even split. But yeah, first lyric that James wrote. Yes, he told me this when we were in the Red Dragon studio. And I didn't know at the time because I'd heard it on the radio. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what the song was about, and at the time, I just thought that was a bit strange singing a song about a drink. Mm. And then when I went into the studio, he explained what it was, and I was blown away. Mm. And then he taught me to play it. Wow! But we didn't. I didn't do the middle bit because I didn't have time to learn it really. Yeah, so yeah. I just picked up on the chords and joined in with him there. But that riff in the middle of the verses mm-hmm. and the chorus, that really heavy driving riff, yeah. that is just like anger and mm. frustration and sadness all rolled into one in those three musical notes and Definitely. just driven. And then it just goes all nice and light again. It's like, right, we've got to be really good now because this is all the time we have left and we've got mm. to make the most of it so come on let's drink some ocean spray and let's shift mm. that cancer and get it out you know let's try and get better and then it all comes crashing in again with those emotions in that musical riff again and those who have gone through something like living with cancer or had relatives who've passed away with cancer you know what I'm talking about yeah. there it just crashes in on you and it's just so clear with the music that he had gone through that pain firsthand. Definitely. Yeah, very raw. And I think those those angry bursts really make the song for me. For me. Yes. You've got yeah. that kind of chilled, that that calm 
yeah, the calm before the storm, really, isn't it? And then we keep getting glimpses of what we know is around the corner. And then, of course, the middle eight is Sean, Sean Moore's fantastic solo on the trumpet there, which I'll play a little clip of now. Which, oh, so soulful. Yeah. I mean, it was Sean's auntie, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can yeah. hear all the emotion and the sadness in that trumpet playing. Definitely. I think, yeah, just, again, adding that at that point in the song, you know, oh, just it gives me goosebumps. And the little musical trick that he's played there is just lagging ever so slightly behind the beat to come in. Mm. If it was on the beat, it wouldn't have been as successfully soulful a morning, if mm. that's the right phrase, as it is. But to come in just behind the beat, just a fraction behind, and build it up, oh, mm. it got me right in the, in the heart. Yeah, yeah, and definitely the, I, I would have, that was the word I would use as well, mourning, soulful and mourning, almost has a funeral procession vibe without being like that, yeah. it's sort of a little nod to that, and yeah, very good, very simple, I like how simplistic the lyrics are, it's basically, this is what we are doing, this is how I feel about it, let's drink some ocean spray and, and try and make you stay awake. Yeah. He's been human clutching at straws. Mm. You know, we've all been there. We know what it's like. Yeah. So I mentioned B-sides earlier. I've, I'm going to play you what is one of my favourite Manix B-sides. It's called Donkeys. This is a Richie Edwards lyric. So it was uh, before he disappeared. And it's from the Gold Against the Soul days. So it's a second album sort of era. So here we go. Uh, again, I've I've gone a little bit further into the song, so we're not listening to the intro. So this is um, part way into the chorus of Donkeys. Donkeys, 
yeah, there's some really nice, interesting twists and turns in that one musically. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've done quite a bit on, on riffs and chord progressions and, and nice melodies and lyrics, and I just wanted to pull out a, a James Dean Bradfield solo there, as we haven't really focused on the solos yet. And his vocals, I mean, I just love the way he takes his voice into that falsetto, but then turns it into, actually, no, I'm singing, I'm belting it in my head, in my chest voice, really, really loud. You know, and he kind of... remind me of somebody singing. Yeah. Yes, you. (laughs) 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 As I heard him, it just sounded like you. (laughs) <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. I mean, that vocal for me is one of my favourite vocals, just that bit where he he kind of just lets go, lets rip with it, and then into that solo. I know, he's, he's so talented. And I'm sure that was his white SG he was playing. Mm, yeah, yeah. It sounded like so. it, yeah. I mean, I've introduced you at the start of this podcast as as Carol, the bass player, but actually, I mean, you play piano, you play a multitude of instruments, percussion, bass, rhythm, lead. And I know you teach guitar as well. Yeah. You teach, you've you've taught some, you know, you've told me about some of the the young kids you've been teaching, you know, from age eight or whatever that can play, you know, for example, Sweet Child of Mine. <laughs> better than you <laughs> you know you've, you've you've taught them so well <laughs> oh I, I love it when they become better than me yeah, yeah. you know i've got students now that well for the last year i haven't been able to teach obviously but mm. some of my students have got in touch and asked when they can come back and yeah. i've just had another student who's going to go on and develop her career in music therapy wow so I'm in the process of writing a university application at the moment, mm-hmm. I know, a university statement, and I'm so proud of her that she's yeah. going to do this. And I've got students that have gone on and got their masters in music, and it's just an absolute thrill when that happens. It really I is. Bet, yeah. And the best is um, a little girl who was six, and she's got a few YouTube videos out where her dad, who was a student of mine, has learned to play bass, keyboard, lead. Wow, yeah. And they're making their own videos and her and her big sister are singing the melodies and harmonies mm. together and it is so sweet to listen to. I mean, yeah, you've, you've, I guess you've taught a lot of, a lot of lead. You would have taught a lot of solos. What to you, like that bit that we just heard there in Donkey's what does that bring to you? What, what does that bring to a song, in your opinion? What is the point of a good solo when it's placed like that, after that emotive vocal where he goes up into the higher register and back down? Well, when he just launches into a solo like that, it just... It becomes part of the the vocals, if you like. It's like an extension of the vocals and because he's got that wailing at the end and straight into the lead, it's like one continuum. Mm. And you just want to sing it. Well, I do anyway. <laughs> I just want to sing it and, you know, yeah. la, la, la it in my head and really get to know it. Mm. And then that's how I learned to play. I love to listen. 
Yeah. And then I will pick an instrument up and I will work it out on the instrument. And if I can sing it, I know that I can play it. Mm-hmm. If I can't quite sing it, then I know I've got a bit of work to do. Yeah. <laughs> but good solo really, really makes a song. And it's inventiveness at the end of the day. It's freestyling on an instrument that you love and you're just doing your own thing on it. And then you have to remember it note for note after because uh-huh. other people want you to replicate it. Yeah. I always say when you learn, when you, when you do, when you're working out a solo for yourself, you've, you've done it for yourself, then you have to learn it. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Learn it so you can do it exactly the same every time you every time you do it. You cook a recipe for the uh, you you just invent a, a meal for the first time, then you have to replicate that recipe. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Yeah, but you never forget the first time you tasted. Yeah, do you know we've mentioned my father a few times now on, on tonight's episode, but um, he had a you know what we call the world famous curry you know he he traveled over to america years ago and 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 had given someone this recipe little been unbeknownst to me i didn't know he'd given the recipe so he'd never shared this recipe it was just something he would throw together and then he'd present us with a curry you know shove it in the freezer we'd have it for a few weeks of course after he died i was kicking myself that i that i didn't make him give me this recipe <laughs> So I went in his spice cupboard and I just took all the spices home. Yeah. And I just kept making curry after curry, just putting in a bit of this, bit of that. It, it was close, but you know it wasn't quite wasn't quite right. And then yeah. You know, after weeks of trying, uh, a friend of my parents who lives in Boston in America said, "Oh, oh I've got it here." <laughs> she oh. said, "I made her write it down." So she uh, she wrote hand hand wrote it for me and took a photo of it and sent it over. But, but yes, like you said, when you taste it, you know that that's it. My yeah. mum did exactly the same with Hungarian lamb. Mm. <laughs> I've tried so many times to replicate that. But one of a really funny little story was, I was going to Slimming World for a while and. I'd come up with a recipe for carrot and coriander soup, which I entered into their little competition, mm-hmm. ended up being published in the book, and I ended wow. up with a £10 voucher and some lipstick, which was <laughs> <laughs> And then about a year or so later, I was dating this person who asked me to go and meet their auntie. Mm-hmm. So off I went, and the auntie said, oh, I've heard all about you. I've made a, a a lovely meal for you, and she gave me carrot and coriander soup, <laughs> and I tasted it, and I thought that's just like mine. I said, "Where did you get the recipe from?" And she brought out the Slimming World book and showed me my <laughs> recipe. <laughs> she didn't know it was me. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but that's nothing to do with the Mannix. No. <laughs> But, you know, I'm sure they would appreciate that little anecdote. (laughs) It's a little bit ironic, isn't it? (laughs) So, well, from one one great solo there to what I consider to be, I mean, maybe a little bit tongue-in-cheek, maybe I'm not 100% serious about this, but the last song I'm going to play you tonight is the Mannix dabbling 
with a little uh, bit of a disco genre. So a crush genre there. They don't normally do that kind of thing. Yeah. I think they're doing it a bit tongue-in-cheek. And I appreciate the sentiment. And I think they pull it off very well. It has been slated by some fans as being like, why on earth did they do this weird disco track on Know Your Enemy? Yeah. I personally really like the track and I think the bass line is great. Maybe not the best they've ever done, bass line wise, but it's pretty darn good, I think. So let me know, as a bass player, what do you think of Miss Europa Disco Dancer? Tell us a Rickenbacker bass. <laughs> <laughs> it just wants you to get your little white handbag out and dance in your stilettos, doesn't it? <laughs> Big gold hoop earrings and little peplum dresses. <laughs> so, what do you think the Manics do in disco? Well, it's different. <laughs> and why not? <laughs> Why not? I mean, you know, if you're the manics, you can do whatever you like. Yeah. That's great. I loved it. I thought <laughs> it was, yeah. Just imagine our Sal doing that on the drums. Yeah, yeah, she'd love that. Oh, yeah, no, I like that. That was really good. I confess, I liked it. It's disco. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't a big disco fan years ago, but it took me right back to the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that sounds like when it came out, late 80s, early 90s, possibly. Mm. I mean, I think that that album, Know Your Enemy, was 2001. So I guess they're just emulating an old an old sound of an old scene. But yeah, it works. It works well. I'm not sure if his voice is cut out for the smooth, suave, like, yeah. snowy sound. Because it's James Dean Bradfield's voice. Mm-hmm. But it works. Mm-hmm. It works fine. It's great. And what did you think of the bass line? It's a straightforward, easy little bass line. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing too complex about it. And in its simplicity, it's genius. Well, do you know that um, that is one of the songs? So off the Know Your Enemy album, there are two songs that Nicky didn't play bass on because he found it too hard because of course james wrote the music and james came up with the bass line that was one and the other one you have to go away and have a little listen it's called Wattsville blues uh 
He did get to the point where he could play them live then, but uh, it used to be when they played those songs live, he had to swap guitars with him. <laughs> okay, I'll say nothing there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he always he's always been very, um, you know, very derogatory about his own skills as a bassist. I think he's very I think good. He's, most he's musicians sort of, are. Yeah, yeah. He certainly improved... Uh, as the manics have developed, you know, over the years, as musicians. Well, most musicians are a bit self-deprecating anyway. Mm. We always want to strive to be better than we were and we want to be like this person or that person. But I think at the end of the day, if you're going to be successful as a musician, you have to be yourself. Yeah, definitely. You have to be. And there's no point in... I mean, there's every point in developing your own originality in certain genres, that's fine, but be your own self within those genres rather than copying somebody else and trying to be like somebody else because it yeah. doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. But what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So that's our seven tracks. Have you got a favourite? I so think it's uh, there's two. It's got to be designed for life, and if you tolerate this, what about the seven that we just had a little breakdown of? One, um, your was it your meek and your your tender and your tired? Your is tender it? and your tired. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I'm a bit tired. At the That's moment. okay. Yes, I've had a terrible day. You're tender and you're tired as well. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> No, you're tender and you're tired. It touched me a lot when I first heard that. I thought that is such a passionate, gentle way of talking to somebody, recognising that they've got these feelings and they're understood. Mm. You know, that somebody cares enough to understand them and to. It's almost like if you're down and depressed, instead of saying, oh, get over it, lift the two big mm. cover up and crawl underneath there with them. It's yeah, one of those yeah. type of songs, you know, he's getting into the duvet with somebody yeah. in a nice sort of caring and supportive way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I love that song as well. Oh, <laughs> excellent. Well, thank you for your time tonight, well, Carol. Well, it's been great chatting to you about this. Yeah, it's be nice if Sally can come on and do a few things. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so Sally Ann Isles will be hopefully soon joining us to chat all things Mannix in relation to the drums, and she's got some of her own anecdotes to share about Sean Moore. Especially, well, no, I won't say it'll give it away. Ah. <laughs> I can't do that. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks, Carol. Cheers. Hi. Bye. 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 Hi guys, this is Clary, the host. Thanks very much for listening to today's episode. It's just a little disclaimer. I know Sally Ann Isles, my drummer and very good friend, was billed as being on this episode and we were really hoping to have her on. She used to play in Newbridge Kalenin Brass Band with Sean Moore back in the day and also gave him a few little uh, tips on the drums back when he was learning. So it would be great to hear about that at some point, but unfortunately, due to work commitments, uh, she can't make it on today. So watch this space. We might do 
an extra little part six of this bonus feature, so keep your eyes peeled. If you've enjoyed listening to the bonus episodes or to the season so far, please do leave a review on our Facebook page or on our Twitter page. Thanks again. I'm going to leave you with a song by my band, Kutch, to finish off. Enjoy. I wanna stop myself from feeling I'm not, I'm not feeling too well, well, well Now's not the time for revealing I turn to you Join us next time when I interview artist Kyle Legall. Mary 
redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.